Well, we, we love to see our leaders confident, don't we? Not arrogant, certainly not soft, but confident. It's what we like to see in leaders, confidence. We want them to have clarity of purpose, direction, and we want them to have the end goal squarely in their mind. They're driving us towards that. We want our leaders to be sensitive to people's needs for sure, but we don't want leaders flip-flopping back and forth on issues they once called convictions. And what creates confidence? What actually is it that creates confidence in a leader that we would actually have confidence in? I think all of us, when we look at the life of a leader, we want to know a little bit about their background. We want to know how did they get to this place of confidence? We like knowing how they wrestled through the challenges in life and they came out on top. What struggles have they endured that left them learning invaluable lessons that will shape how they lead? How did they come to these concrete conclusions on questions that perhaps once plagued their conscience, but now they're settled and they're confident about them? How did they get there? What is it that forged their confidence? And when it comes to not just any leader, but even particularly spiritual leaders, our confidence in them will likely come and even grow as we learn how it is that they have encountered God and how have they interacted with God on the issues of which they are now confident. Confidence in leadership is not solidified because the leader has a master's degree or a doctorate in theology. Although many seminary students seem to think that's enough. We want them to have had some experience, don't we? We want to see. Does this leader know how to take the truth that he so studied and apply it to the issues of life and that he's actually had to wrestle through the issues with that truth and now he's so confident in that truth that he can lead with clarity? That's what we want to see in the leader. And I think that's what we're learning in Moses. We continue in our study of the book of Exodus, just a chapter at a time in these summer months as we walk together through this wonderful book and likely a chapter that you know well and you've heard many, many times. But what you're seeing here is what actually created confidence in Moses. Moses doesn't sound so confident in this chapter. But you'll see him gain confidence, much like we saw with Abraham in his pilgrimage. He waffles in the beginning, but by Genesis 22, when he's there to sacrifice his son, there's a great confidence in God that was forged through the fires of having to apply what he was learning about God to the issues of his life. That's what we see with Moses. So remember with me as we study this book, the whole book of Exodus shows us Essentially, two things, who God is, the first 18 chapters, and how to interact with God, how to relate to God, chapters 19 to 40. That's what Exodus is about. Who is God? That's the emphasis of the first 18 chapters. How do you relate to God, chapters 19 to 40? So we're right at the beginning of that first stage. Who is God? And a few weeks ago, as we began in chapter 1, Seeing Israel in Egypt after Joseph, we learn that God is the one who is always present with his people. In all of their prosperity, in their pain, in their provision, God is always with his people, even if they don't perceive it. 
He's always with his people. Now in chapters 2 through 4, these chapters essentially all go together because it's the introduction of Moses. It's not just the introduction of Moses to us, but it's the introduction and the calling of Moses to the great work that God had for him to do. And seeing Moses' background and his calling into service as we are in chapters 2, 3, and 4, we're going to learn that God is the one who is always preparing his people for service. That's what you see in Moses' life here. He's preparing Moses to serve him. It's not that Moses doesn't know anything about God. He does. Remember, his mother, his Jewish mother, raised him to understand that he was a Hebrew. He had that self-identity. He understood that. But now he really gets to apply whether or not that, that formative knowledge of his younger days is really going to drive him in life. This is the calling, this is the preparation of Moses to serve. Last week we looked at chapter 2 and the providential pedigree of the one that God would use to deliver his people and this morning we'll focus on chapter 3 and this is Moses' direct calling to be God's tool to deliver God's people. The direct calling of God to be God's tool to deliver God's people. It's not difficult to see how the chapter unfolds. There are really just two parts to it. The first part we'll look at is Moses' initial encounter with God. That's going to be the first nine verses. There's an initial encounter with God that Moses has. And then we're going to see some initial interactions with God. There's a back and forth. God speaks, Moses objects. God speaks, Moses objects. We'll see that in the latter part of the chapter, from verse 10 down through verse 22. So through this initial encounter of Moses with God, we're provided what looks to be a a very helpful example to us of how it is that God often prepares his people to serve him. That's what God is doing in Moses' life, and there are many parallels there that we can look at within our own preparation to serve the Lord. Certainly there are distinguishing marks in Moses, but I hope that you'll see that there are characteristic truths here as well of how God prepares his people to serve him. So how does God's initial call to Moses show us how God prepares, often prepares his people for service? Well, as there are two parts to this chapter, we're just going to look at two parts to Moses' call from God that show us two aspects as to how God often prepares his people for service. And I want you to think through these with me. Two different aspects as to how God often prepares his people for service. What are these different aspects? We're going to walk through the chapter and see them. First, I want us to concentrate on the ways we encounter God. That's what's happening in the first nine verses. Moses encounters God. And there's very specific ways in which he encounters God all throughout these first nine verses that I want you to think with me on very carefully and see that there are unique parallels here. Ways we encounter God as he prepares to serve, prepares us to serve. How does he do it? Well, let me suggest a few of them to you. First of all, we encounter God in normal ways, in normal ways. We miss this far too often. We encounter God 
in normal ways. You think to encounter God would be extraordinary, supernatural every time, but actually we encounter God in very, very normal ways. And that's exactly what you see in the first verse. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now think through this carefully. From what we learn from Stephen, if you remember Stephen in Acts chapter 7 who is recounting a history of Israel, Stephen gives us a little insight as to when this happens in Moses' life. In chapter 7 and verse 23, in retelling the account, Stephen tells us that Moses was about 40 years old, or at least he was approaching 40 years when he first left Egypt. Then he goes on to say that he spent about 40 years, close to 40 years, shepherding the flocks of his father-in-law. So that makes Moses around the age of 80 when he begins to hear the call of God to go liberate the people of Israel. How's that for when you're going to start serving God? 80. 80 years old. He's a healthy man for 80. We don't get any indication here that anyone else is with him as he's shepherding this flock. He seems to be alone which would be significant, one man shepherding this flock. There is a curious little note, if you were with us last week, Moses' father-in-law was named, but he was not named by this name, right? Last week we saw in chapter 2 that Moses' father-in-law was named Ruel. Here he's called Jethro. From a number of other places in the scripture, namely in Numbers 10.29 and Judges 4.11, we get the idea that Ruel was probably a name that Jethro shared with his father. That was his father's name as well. He likely shared that name. And so to distinguish him, his name is commonly the name of Jethro. Again, he's described here. Would you look at it real carefully? He's pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, but the, Moses does not want you to get the sense that, that Jethro is just a shepherd. What is the emphasis on who Jethro is, according to the text? What is it right there in verse 1? He is the priest, the priest in Midian. He is the representative between God and the people in the region of Midian. This is the priest of Midian. Moses wants that emphasized. As he's shepherding, as he's pasturing, as he's grazing the flock of his father-in-law, who is a priest, he then leads the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, and it's called here the mountain of God. The son-in-law of the priest is leading the flock far away from his home to the west side of the wilderness, to a place known as the mountain of God. Now, some suggest that it was not the mountain of God until after this encounter, but that doesn't seem to be the way the text actually emphasizes it from the beginning. This is known as the mountain of God. The reason why Jethro is emphasized as a priest is because it seems here that Moses is intentionally driving the flock far away from home, namely toward Egypt toward Egypt, to the mountain of God. In fact, we'll learn in verse 18 that it is likely that this mountain is about three days journey from the capital city in Egypt from which Pharaoh rules. That would likely mean that Moses has driven this flock weeks 
away from his hometown. This is not circumstantial. This is intentional from Moses. You say, well, why would he do that? Why would he drive the flock back toward Egypt to the mountain of God? Well, if you recall, we touched on this last week, that Stephen's statement about Moses and Moses' own thoughts about himself is that he supposed, do you remember when Moses killed the Egyptian who was harming the Hebrew slave? Moses thought, he thought, he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. Moses had this self-awareness. He looked at his upbringing, how he was saved from the waters by Pharaoh's daughter, how he was raised in his mother's home as a Hebrew under the royal household of Pharaoh, and he assumed that his brothers would say, look what God is doing. Isn't this amazing? God put a Hebrew who should have been murdered in the royal house of Pharaoh, so it must be that Moses is going to be the deliverer. I don't think that thought ever left his mind, even after he fled Egypt. My guess is for 40 years of shepherding the flocks, he had this in his mind. What is God going to do? This isn't all just circumstantial. This has to be God involved somewhere in this. What is God up to for 40 years as a shepherd? When is deliverance going to come? Don't miss this. He's 40 years shepherding. And then he comes to the mountain of God. What does that mean? For 40 years, life just went on and on and on in the normality of life. Learning a new trade, shepherding. He wasn't a shepherd by trade. The Egyptians despised shepherds. He picked this up. For 40 years, 40 years. Think about it, friends. Some of you can't. You don't know what that is. In fact, some of you are so frustrated that it's taken you three years to get to where you are, or four years. Moses would, I think he would have a glorified, oh, hush moment here, you know? This is what God does. God prepares and calls his people to serve him through the normal flow of everyday life, everyday employment. Do not despise it. Do not ignore it. It is not inconsequential. It is incredibly significant for what he wants to do with you. It should not surprise us that God might use the secular employment of regular members of a local church to prepare them to serve God in more specified ways in the future. It should not surprise us at all that God would pluck someone out of the normal flow of what seems to be an average life and use them in spectacular ways. Should actually even temper the aspirations of some who are frustrated with their current roles, the current ways that they're serving. They're always wanting to do something different. Do you ever find yourself at that place? You're like, okay, I'm in this. I know God has me here, but, but I'm always anticipating the next thing rather than living in this moment and learning from it. This should warn the impatient seminary students who are in the room, there's a few, that often feel like, I've put in my time, I've earned the degrees, I've done the work, it's time for me to be the senior pastor, I don't have any experience, but it's time. 
I deserve it. I've actually heard that from guys graduating with a master's degree. I didn't put all this time and this money and this effort into getting a master's degree just to go be, you know, work another job somewhere. Well, maybe, maybe God thinks you're not ready. It might help you to relate to the flock in more specific and tangible ways for you to go get a real job before he gives you a pastoral job. And I mean that. <laughs> How significant do you think the normality of shepherding another man's flock prepared Moses to shepherd a people who belong uniquely to God? What do you think took place in his heart to break him down where he needed to be, to build him up to who he needed to be, to prepare him with the skills and knowledge and dependence on God that would be required to stand up to Pharaoh and lead this people the way he was going to lead them. We encounter God in normal ways. Secondly, we also encounter God in abnormal ways. So here's the normality. He's just shepherding the flock and then he encounters a burning bush. Abnormal. Abnormal. Now, maybe it is that God doesn't, in the same supernatural way, prepare us like he is Moses, but God does use some abnormal displays of his power to prepare us. Verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him. There is great debate on who the angel of the Lord is. Is this an angelic representative of God, an angel who simply comes and displays himself to the people and he speaks as if he were God? Or is this God himself who comes and takes on some kind of physical form? It seems to be the latter. It seems to be that the one who speaks from the bush is actually God, not some representative of God. And so the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire. Why a fire? Well, probably for many, many reasons. One, he wants to get Moses' attention and fire tends to do that, doesn't it? Ah, a fire in the middle of the the desert and a bush. Now, this wouldn't be uncommon But we don't get any indication that he's in a rainstorm. There don't seem to be clouds in the sky. So this isn't a lightning strike that lit up a bush. This seems to be abnormal. There is a bush burning. There's a fire lit. Fire that at times when the air gets cool, draws you to find warmth. And fire at the same time that you understand is fierce enough to harm you. Sounds like a perfect thing for God to use. There's a blazing fire in the midst of a bush, a typical bush like a thorn bush. The word that's used here in Hebrew simply just refers to a typical briar brush. It's completely ablaze, absolutely consumed in fire. And he looked, it says, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So he's not really concerned that there's a, a bush on fire. But when he looks at it, I mean, he's, he's been around these before. He would light a fire every night. He knows how quickly the brush would burn up and how he would have to keep, keep the fire going. He knows what, what it should look like and there's no consumption of this bush whatsoever. So verse three says, Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight why the bush is not burned up. Now, he calls it here a marvelous sight. It's the typical word, gadol, for great. And many times this word in in the Hebrew language is used to refer to something that is divine. 
It is very likely that when he saw the bush being consumed, not consumed, burning, but not consumed, he looked at this and said, this is divine. This is not just weird. This is something from heaven. This is something from God. And where is he? And where was he going? The mountain of God. So this catches his attention. Ah, there's something divine here. Now, it's not uncommon in the scripture for God to use some extremely supernatural means to encounter and call some of his most significant servants in the Bible. He certainly did that with Abraham. When Abraham conversed with God, you see it in Genesis chapter 15, God displayed himself in the midst of fire and pieces of animals that were cut and made a covenant with him. So there was fire and supernatural display of God in Genesis 15. Certainly it was supernatural when God provided a ram when Abraham was about to slit his son's throat in Genesis 22 and provided sacrificially there for him and substitutionarily for him. Joshua encountered the angel of the Lord directly. John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, certainly encountered an angel from God in a supernatural way when he was serving in the temple. Mary encountered an angel from God who called her in a supernatural way to bear the Messiah. Joseph certainly had a supernatural encounter with an angelic being. Even the apostle Paul had a supernatural encounter. So it's not abnormal to see that in choice servants of God used in significant ways, but it's not typical, is it, for God to use the same kind of abnormal means for most of the people that he calls and most of us for whom he's preparing. It would not be out of character, though, for God to intervene in the lives of his people in some ways that may seem abnormal. Specific answers to prayer. Supernatural conversion of people, I think sometimes we take that for granted. It's supernatural for an unbeliever to actually believe. It's not just a matter of changing your mind and having a good argument made and you say, yeah, I should stop doing that and start doing this. God seems like a good answer. No, 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 no. People dead to God who are resurrected into life, that's a supernatural thing. And if you saw someone, and if you were a person who's sharing the gospel and you're seeing people converted, that would be a supernatural work of the Lord using you as a tool. There are sometimes supernatural displays of sanctification as people abandon their sin. And certainly we heard that kind of supernatural work in the life of Ryan this morning. Could be... God directing members of the congregation in ways they think are normal but appear quite supernatural as you hear them. When voices of the congregation begin to confirm ministry in your life in ways that you've been praying about, wondering about, and the person telling you has no idea what God is doing but it seems to be directly from the Lord. This massively abnormal approach to calling Moses, this wasn't just for Moses' sake. It certainly helped him but Can you imagine what kind of confidence this would have inspired in the people of Israel when he came to them and said, I was at the mountain of God and a bush that was not consumed, the Lord met me there and told me. The Israelites would then have to say, well, perhaps we have to listen a little more carefully here. I think seeing the divine activity of God in the life of a normal person is a clear way to provide confidence to others, to yourself. And how God has encountered and prepared a man to lead his people. He uses normal ways. 
He uses some abnormal ways. It's the third way we encounter God when he prepares his people to serve. Third, in verse 4, we encounter God in personal ways. In personal ways. Verse 4 says, When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. The fire was obviously there to get his attention. And once it was apparent that Moses' attention was arrested and Moses was making his way to the bush, God actually stuns him even further. It's one thing to see a bush burning that isn't consumed. It's another thing for the bush to talk. God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. Now this is significant. One commentator Doug Stewart notes how the repetition of a person's name was common in the Semitic culture. That is, the the culture of the Israelites and the region surrounding them. It was common in Semitic culture to express endearment or affection or even friendship. To call someone's name twice like that is not just to say, hey, I want your attention. It's I'm interested in you. There's affection, endearment, and friendship that's coming. This is personal. We see this a number of times in the scripture in 1 Samuel 3, when God was calling his prophet Samuel, he called to him in the night, remember, Samuel, Samuel. In 2 Samuel 18, when David was weeping over his fallen son, Absalom, he cried out in grief and affection, Absalom, oh Absalom. In Matthew 27, verse 46, when Jesus was on the cross, what did he cry out? My God, My God. Jesus said there would be people who approach him at the end when they see the Lord. Matthew 7, 21. And in some kind of feigned affection would say, Lord, Lord, did we not? Even in Acts chapter 9, verse 4, when Saul was struck with blinding light and fell to his knees and the Lord began to speak to him. The Lord spoke to him, Saul, Saul. Bushes don't speak. But if they do, how likely would they know your name? And if they knew your name, how odd that they would speak your name in friendship and affection from a burning fire. This is not the foreboding voice of God. This is the intimate call of God of a specific person he loves. Which is why Moses responds as he does. Here I am. It's as if he says, I'm surrendered. He's driving the flock to the mountain of God as the son-in-law of the priest. Sees the fire. Hears the voice say, Moses, Moses. I'm here. I'm here. I'm surrendered. I think when God calls his people, he does it in very personal ways, tailored to you. What you've gone through, where you are, what's going on in your life, even right now. He knows you. He's not calling to you like you're his slave. He's calling to you as if you belong to him as a child, right? It's one thing for us to see ourselves as the servants of God, the slaves of God. It's another thing for the master to treat his slaves like 
friends. Which is what God does when he calls his people to himself. But to temper that, there is a fourth way we encounter God that's highlighted here. We encounter him in personal ways, yes. But let's look at the flip side of that. We encounter him in transcendent ways also. I use that word transcendent. Yes, you can look at how to spell it on the screen. Because this is God. He is imminent, that is, he is close. God is transcendent, meaning he is above and different and distinct. And he always wants us to keep both sides in our mind. Which is exactly what he does with Moses in verse 5. He tenderly calls to Moses in verse 4, but verse 5, he then says, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Remove your sandals from your feet. Why would he say, take your sandals off? Well, it could be that God views the dirt under the, under the bush like we might view our pearly white carpet at home. And we tell people, take your shoes off before you come in our house. We don't want, we don't want those soiled shoes Messing up our, our white precious carpet. Not picking on anybody. But we do, we do that, right? And it could be this sign that, that you're in a place of purity. Take your sandals off so that you don't bring impurity into this pure place. But I, I kind of don't think that's the emphasis. Because I'm not sure how clean his feet would be from driving a flock three or four weeks away from home that the dirt on the bottom of his feet was much less than the dirt on the bottom of his sandal. And another thing, take your shoes off because this is holy ground. Holy, by definition, fundamentally at its root, is not about purity. Sometimes we think that, we talk about holiness as if the fundamental idea behind holiness is purity, but it's not. It's not at all. Holy means separate, distinct, unique. God isn't like you. We are common. There's nothing common about God. There's nothing normal or regular or ordinary about God. There is about us. God isn't like anyone else. He's not like anything else in the universe. He's higher, he's distinct, he's different from, he's exalted from all things. Now, purity is derived from this distinction in God. If God is so distinct, you should live in a manner commensurate with his distinction. But for the ground to be holy is to acknowledge the direct physical presence of God which means you need to acknowledge somehow that you do not see yourself like him, but you see yourself as like everything else. In fact, R.C. Sproul in his book, The Holiness of God, points this out well. And if you've never read The Holiness of God, it it may be one of the the most lasting treasures from R.C. Sproul's teaching ministry. You should get that book. But he comments on this passage and he said, God commanded Moses to take off his shoes. 
Moses was standing on holy ground. The ground was made holy by the presence of God. The act of removing the shoes was a symbol of Moses' recognition that he was of the earth, earthy. The feet of man, sometimes called feet of clay, symbolize our creatureliness. It is our feet that link us to the earth. He's not saying don't track dirt into my presence. He's saying I want you to make yourself one with the earth to acknowledge my distinctiveness, holiness. That's what God was doing. And friends, God will be intimate and personal with us. He is. He is our Father who is in heaven. But that never makes him common like us. We are never to assume that his personal interaction makes him more like us. He is not. It doesn't make us more like him. It does not. He is holy. We may reflect that holiness in the kind of life that we live in purity, but we do that because we recognize he is unlike anything else in this world. In fact, God's intimacy with us should never make us act flippantly with him. And there is something for us to learn with that today. It is not common for many Christians to think that because God is personal and intimate and caring and concerned, that we should then not treat him with reverence and respect and awe. Almost like we feel like, hey, if God showed up because we're his children, he wouldn't mind if we just ran up and gave him a big high five. You think God wants to bump knuckles with you? You you think God just wants to embrace? I think we would do what Moses did if we saw God in this moment. And I think that because virtually everyone else who figured out that they were standing in the presence of God did not put her there, God. They hit the deck. They hid their face, afraid to look at God. Even angels who constantly surround the throne in Isaiah 6 have wings that cover their face so as not to behold the purity of the glory of God. Yes, he's personal. He's transcendent also. No matter what God does through us, never miss the fact that it is God the creator of the universe that breathed everything into existence with his own breath. It is God doing that work. That doesn't make you prideful. That humbles you. There's a fifth way we encounter God when he prepares us for service. We encounter God in promised ways. In promised ways. What is emphasized next? As Moses has got his feet to the ground and even his lips to the dirt, God speaks to him in verse 6. He said also, I am the God of your father. Notice it's the God of your father, singular, not the God of your father's. He's emphasizing Abraham. Why? Because he's about to tell him, you are the next critical piece in the covenant that I made with your father Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. I am the God of your father, 
the God of Abraham. And then it says, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look at God. He realized this is the eternal God. Hmm. This is really substantial. I'm the God of the covenant that made this promise to Abraham. And you are right in the middle of that promise. You're the next piece in it. I'm the God who sustained that promise through Isaac and Jacob and certainly knew he knew all of the account of that, that story of Isaac and Jacob. Of note here is that Jesus will quote this very passage to indicate when he's having an argument with the Sadducees about the resurrection. Do you remember that? The Sadducees come up to Jesus and they give him a scenario about trying to make light of resurrection, that there's no such thing as physical resurrection. And Jesus actually quotes this passage. I am the God of your father, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, and makes this statement, I am the God not of the dead, but of the living. And he said that to substantiate the resurrection. You say, well, what in the world does that mean? What is he doing with that? Well, it's this. Was Abraham dead? Yes, he was dead. His body was buried in a tomb back in Palestine. So was Isaac and so was Jacob. They're all buried in that same place. They're dead. But God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, meaning why did Abraham want to go back and be buried in that place? Because there was a promise that God made and that promise he had not yet experienced. Isaac was buried there because God made a promise to them that he had not yet experienced. He wanted to be in that place. Jacob, for the same reason. And what was the promise? That I would make of you a great nation and you would inhabit that land forever. But they died, as the book of Hebrews says, without having seen the promise fulfilled. So what does this mean? He's not the God of dead people who are buried, but of living, meaning God is going to raise them from the dead and finish his promise. Death will not overcome them. That's Jesus' point, and Moses likely understands that. This is the God who will raise the dead through the promised Messiah. And he's speaking to me. That's why he hides his face. Verse 8, so I have come down to deliver them. He says, I've, I've heard the cry because of their taskmasters, the end of verse 7. I'm aware of their suffering, so I have come down. In fact, it's really interesting in verse 7. I have seen the affliction of my people. I've given heed, that means I've heard. And I'm aware of, I know. This is the same three words that were used back in chapter 2, verses 24 to 25. God has seen, God has heard, God knows the affliction of his people. So God leaves him on his face. And he says, I've come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. What's he emphasizing there? The promise isn't finished, Moses. We're not done. The next piece is about to be laid on the, on the puzzle. And I'm about to give you this land. I'm going to restore you to the land. Remember, Abraham was promised the land and it was confirmed to him by God's own existence in Genesis 15. Confirmed again in Genesis 17. The land was critical to the promise of God. 
And now he's saying, I'm going to restore this nation I promised to that land because I am the God of the living. I'm going to bring it about. And he calls it a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the first time of maybe 20 times you're going to see this throughout the the Pentateuch and a few other places. It likely refers to what is filled with a land that is filled with enjoyment and abundance. Abundance and enjoyment. A land that flows with milk, namely a land that has everything necessary to sustain large flocks who produce milk. It's always flowing with abundance. And honey, not just the honey from bees, but likely the nectar from some of the dates in the area. That's how it's used throughout the scripture. But it's used to speak of a land that is so prosperous it produces what is sweet. It's abundant and sweet and this is what God promised. It should make your mind think all the way back to the original creation that was full of abundance and enjoyment and sweetness. I'm going to bring you back to a land like that. That would be thrilling to hear, wouldn't it? But it's also a land filled with your enemies. Why does he list all these names? I think he says them to scare the life out of him. Yes, abundance, but it's going to require extreme dependence. It's going to require dependence. If you want to have and enjoy that abundance, you're going to have to be completely dependent on God. All of this is a specific focused reminder that all that God is doing and he will do is completely connected to a promise that he made thousands of years ago. Friends, do you understand that? That what we're doing right now, what is going on in your life right now, where God has you in life right now is all connected to a promise he has made thousands of years ago that you are a part of it, seeing it worked out in your life right now. Very much like Moses. It's connected with what he promised And what he is personally, transcendently fulfilling. In normal ways and abnormal ways. That's how we encounter God. To finish this, we'll look at the last part of this chapter. Not just looking at ways we encounter God, but I want you to see some ways we interact with God. And there's just going to be two of these as we bring it to a conclusion. So look secondly, as God prepares Moses and ways in which he prepares us, look at the ways we interact with God because this is the back and forth. God speaks, Moses objects, back and forth. How does Moses interact with God? How does he interact with us? First, I want you to see that God patiently answers our objections. He patiently answers our objections. Here's that series of back and forth. Look at verse 10. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. This is the first detail that God gives. Likely would have struck a very unique chord in Moses' heart. I'm about to send you back to Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Which Pharaoh? Well, remember, the Pharaoh who initiated the slavery was gone. He was dead. And so the Pharaoh now ruling is likely one that Moses grew up with somewhat like a brother. Oh, that Pharaoh? You're going to send me? It's been 40 years. To that guy? 
you, you do understand there's like in every Egyptian post office, there's a wanted sign with my face on it for 40 years. I, I, it's not like I can just walk in and, and Pharaoh's like, hey, brother, where you been all this time? It, it, you know, it's one thing for God to say, I'm going to deliver my people from the most powerful force on the planet. It's another thing for God to say, oh, you're going to be the instrument. You're going to be the deliverer. And in doing, in using you as the deliverer, I'm going to confront every fear you've ever had. But isn't that what God does? How often do you find God targeting like it was specific and designed for you? He targets your very insecurities all the time. To harm you? No. To use you, to grow you, to strengthen you, to be that person within the promise of God to do exactly what he designs to do. It's just like God. He gets so much praise from doing it this way. We get to see his glory so uniquely. But Moses isn't too sure, like we aren't when God targets our insecurities. Moses says, certainly, or Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Who am I? Did you forget? I'm not in the royal family anymore. I'm persona non grata in the house. They'll kill me. I'm a nobody. I'm a shepherd. They hate shepherds. They especially hate shepherds who used to be in the family. I'm nobody. Do you remember when Jesus laughed in the New Testament? I think he laughed. You say, is it explicit in the text? Almost. I know it says he wept, but... When he laughed, it says in Luke 10, 21, at that very time, it says, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? I don't know. When someone rejoices greatly, I think you laugh. And I think he laughed. What did he say when he laughed? When Jesus got so much spirit generated joy it's when he said I praise you O father lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants yes father for this was well pleasing in your sight father I get so much joy and pleasure thinking about how you're going to take nobodies and do eternal things with them or Paul in first Corinthians 1 Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has God not made the foolish, made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before God. Moses asked the wrong question. Who am I? Wrong question. How does God answer it in verse 12? He said, certainly I will be with you. Have you already forgotten who I am? Did you forget that you're talking to a bush that's burning and not consumed? Did you forget that the angel of the Lord is here telling you you're on holy ground? Make yourself like the dirt. 
in front of me? Did you forget? Wrong question. It's not who you are. It's who am I? I will be with you. What are you worried about now? What are you worried about? I put Pharaoh there. What are you worried about? It's an impossible task. He's not going to let me in there. Who do you think I am, Moses? Isn't that the key to serving God? You know that impossible task that God put in front of us to make disciples of all the nations of the earth? Impossible. How are we going to get all the nations of the earth to believe in God? Don't you remember what Jesus said? For lo, I am with you. I am Emmanuel. I am God who is with us. How impossible is the task? Perhaps infinitely impossible, humanly speaking. But God is with us. Verse 12. And this, he said, he said, certainly I'll be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship. And the word worship is the common word for serve. As if the service that they would give to God, the way they would live their life was worship to God. You will worship me. You will serve me at this mountain. You're going to bring the people out of Egypt. You'll come and serve me according to what I reveal in chapters 19 through 40. You'll serve me at this mountain. That's a sign. It's a sign that I'm with you because the only way you get back to this mountain with those two million people with you intact and worship me is that I'm the one that delivers you. There's the sign. So then verse 13, Moses said to God, behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel and I'll say to them, it's almost as if, if, as if he said, all right, now God, let's just do a hypothetical. Let's suppose I do go. And I go to Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, not that they will, but they might. What is his name? What shall I say to them? What is he doing? Well, his question's wrong-headed to begin with. He's not to tell them, I'm representing the God of your fathers. He should be there saying, I am sent by the God of our fathers. His question's theologically bankrupt too. Does Moses not know God's covenant promise and the name attached to that covenant promise? He, he certainly knows the name, doesn't he? Is, does he think this is a secret password name? Maybe, maybe he's lost sight of it. It's also an empty hypothetical question because nobody ever asked him this question, by the way. It's an excuse. As one commentator suggests, maybe like some of us, Moses excels at raising problems and issues that never emerge as problems and issues. God is so merciful he answers him. He doesn't obliterate him. He answers him. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am? What does that mean? Well, it's a play off of the Hebrew word to be, hayah. I am. I exist. I always have existed. This is my name. He goes on in verse 15. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, 
the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name. That is the name by which you'll remember me. You'll remember me according to this covenant to all generations. Everybody who's in this covenant will know me by this name. This is my name connected to my promise. This is the name of the promise. One commentator noted, God responds by providing not a label for his name, but a theology. I think that's right. Why, why do you say I am? Well, for, for many reasons. For many reasons. One, it's a name that means he's eternal. There's no beginning and end. He always is. It's a, mean, it's a word that means he's self-existent. Nobody brought him into being. He simply is. He is sufficient as well. He is everything that he needs. He is. Whatever they need, he will be. That's who God is. It's his personal name, Yahweh, the one who is. You say, ah, that's like all the other gods who had personal names. Well, kind of, except when you think of this God, you think of everything that he is. You think of the theology behind him, not just the personality, but everything about God is wrapped up in that name. The name that the theologians refer to as the Tetragrammaton, the four-letter name, Y-H-W-H in English, Yahweh, that we sometimes pronounce it as. Even one recent translation translates all of these uses here, over 6,000 uses in the Old Testament as Yahweh, so that you don't forget God has a personal name. In your Bible, it's usually reflected as Lord in all capitals, but it's actually the divine name, Yahweh. That's his name. You tell them the eternal one has sent you. I mean, every, every objection, there's an answer to it, isn't there? Isn't that merciful of God? You want me to do what? I can't do it because God says, well, I'll I'll help. You know who I am? I'm, I'm the one who has all power and authority. I'll help. Any, any other obje- objections? Ah, oh, well, what if they ask? Well, you just tell them who I am. I'm everything. Any other objections? I mean, he answers them mercifully. Again, you don't have an excuse for serving God. I've got to get to this level. I've got to do this first. I, no, you don't have any excuses for serving where God wants you to serve. Stop throwing him up there. Is he not enough? Is his promise not sufficient? Is his nature not good enough? He answers all of our objections. Lastly, in all of our interactions with God and how he prepares us, he clearly delivers our instructions also. Because that's what he does with Moses. He just clearly delivers the instructions. There's no back and forth here. There's just God speaking. And God is not unclear about the calling. He's laid out the mission, the challenges, and even the ending. I want you to look through it. Look at verse 18. They'll pay heed to what you say. And you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt. And you will say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. So now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Now, from what you know about the story, is that true? Oh, yeah, it's completely true. You will go, you will speak to Pharaoh. This is what you'll say to him. Now, God didn't tell him exactly every detail of how it was going to work out, did he? Oh, there's, he's not going to do it just once. 
There's going to be a few times he has to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go, right? But he did lay it out. You will go and do this. Verse 19, but I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. Well, again, that's true. There's going to be struggle here. You just didn't tell him it was going to take 10 plagues to do it. Verse 20, I'll stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he'll let you go. Oh, the granular granular details aren't displayed here, but he's told him the big picture, do this, go say this. This is what I want you to do. Focus on what's faithful to these directions here. And there's this marvelous promise. Verse 21, I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians And it shall be, when you go, you will not go empty-handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters, and thus you will plunder the Egyptians. Now keep in mind, what are the Egyptians doing with the Hebrews right now? The Hebrews are building their temples to house their gold and to house all their articles of silver, etc., in an unjust, unfair way. And so I'm going to do something amazing. I'm going to cause the Egyptians to want to give up everything they have of value to you. Freely of their own will, they're going to say, please take all of our stuff. And so I'm going to leave them penniless. How about that? How about that for justice? I'm going to make them act of their own will freely to do what will bring about justice. That's just like God. Now, could you even imagine that happening? Well, you can because you read the end of the story, and so you know. But I'm sure Moses is like, you're going to what? These people love their gold. They're not going to just say, hey, take it. Want some more? Take it with you. God says, that's what I'm going to do. He's not unclear. I, I think that's a lot like us as well. We have all these objections, but has God been unclear with us? This is what I want you to do as a church. Here's how I want you to worship. Here's how I want you to live. Here's what I want you to emphasize in life. He's given it to us detail after detail after detail in the Bible. And then we're always wondering about the stuff he hasn't told us. All the details he hasn't revealed. And we even fight and bicker over those things. When well, we should just focus on what has he said. He's preparing his people. Now I find when we look at this chapter, Moses is such a help to me. Don't you love seeing other failures? Don't you love that? Doesn't it make you feel good about yourself that other people have these issues too? It should. It should help you. And you know what we normally do with that? We like to hang around with fellow failures. They make us feel good if we can just kind of commiserate about our inadequacies. And there's something good about that to know that that I'm not alone in the struggle. I think that's good. But there's something else here you should see. Moses is not the ultimate deliverer, is he? He's flawed. He's so flawed. In fact, you don't look at Moses and say, that's the one person I want to put all my hope in. God is not going to use Moses so Israel will say, Moses is the one we trust in. Because Moses isn't different than they are. And why is it that the writer, that the the writers of the Gospels go into painstaking detail 
to show how Jesus' life actually parallels much of the life of Moses. Much of the life of Moses is, is seen in Jesus' life. In fact, John goes to such great detail to show us multiple times that Jesus says, I am, I am the way, I am the door, I am the shepherd, I am. And the Jews want to stone him because he, a man, is making himself out to be who? God. Where in the Gospels do you read about Jesus saying, hey, God, I know you want to send me, but I can't. You don't ever see that. In fact, the clear testimony of the gospel writers is he did everything that his father sent him to do perfectly. Moses is not the object of our affection. Moses is not the object of our trust. There is one who's gone through all of that just like us and yet without sin, without any failure. The one who actually raises the dead and brings brings into our world the new creation. That's who you trust in, right? When we say in a moment in the Lord's table that we take this bread and we say we are the representation of the body of Christ on this earth, we realize our failures. But we're actually looking to him and his perfection that we want to represent who he is well. When we take that cup in a moment, we're saying, I so believe in Christ and identify with him as the sufficient savior that he is because he obeyed in everything perfectly. And I link myself to him. And we do that together as a body saying, we are the people of God who represent him. And we will do this in anticipation of his return to this earth. So in a moment, we're gonna take of these elements together. And what you're saying when you take them is I'm a Christian. Those who take of these elements are those who have already openly declared their faith in Christ through the waters of baptism. And they are members of a local church which is the body of Christ so that these symbols actually have meaning. You're saying I am with these people, the body of Christ because of faith in Jesus Christ. You take the cup and you're saying, I am covered in the blood of Christ, forgiven by sin, and I identify with his people whom he bought with his own blood, and we are waiting for him to come. So if that's you, whether a member of this church or a member of any other right church, good and faithful church to the truth, you're welcome to participate and show your identity with Jesus. If not, then just know Christ is calling you. You have a Savior who will save you from your sin. Trust him. You have a God who is everything who will deliver you from your sin, just as you heard in the testimony and baptism today. He will save you. But feel free to pass the plate along because this is for those who are going to say we are the body of Christ and we represent him and we rely on him and we trust him. Pray with me as we prepare for the Lord's table. Father, we thank you for this time of meditating on the scripture. We thank you for this time in which we could enjoy studying the word of God. Help us. Help us to be faithful by your grace, by your power. I pray for those outside of Christ that they would see their need of a sufficient savior 
and they would come and they would believe. And I pray for those who love the Lord and see their inadequacies, remind them of your adequacy. Remind them you are sufficient. You are enough. You see, you hear, and you know. As we sing and as we take of the elements, remind us who we are, who we represent to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask the men who are going to help serve